host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, John Mattis. John, what's going on, man? Hey, what's happening? It's been a while. What's going on, Dmitry? It's good. It's good to have you back on. You're, uh, I was during the Jack Hahn episode we just did, I was talking about how I'm in Seattle uh, or Canucks Kraken and other sporting activities over the weekend, and you uh, are fresh off a trip of your own to Buffalo to watch. Uh, the Buffalo Sabers play the Pittsburgh Penguins, and uh, this is uh, this is the good stuff. I love having you on. Uh, boots on the ground reporting. Uh, going to be talking about what's going on behind the scenes, the sense you're getting from talking to people around the team, all that good stuff. This is uh, what it's all about. But it's good to have you back on, and we're going to get into the listener questions here. We've got some fun mailbag questions. Uh, the listeners of this show always deliver, always with fun outside the box, thought provoking ideas. So. Uh, we're going to see how far we can get with it and have some fun with it. Um, while we're on the topic of the Sabres, we got a question about them, and I think that's a good segue into getting into this conversation because it's on top of mind, and you were just there, as I said. And so uh, Kobe asks, what's up with the Sabres? This was the season they were going to fight for a playoff spot, and sure, they won some games, but it feels like they haven't been doing it in a very convincing way, however. What do the numbers suggest? Are they struggling as much as it seems? And what should they do to change that? So... Uh, you were there. That was probably one of their more encouraging performances, especially the way it ended, right? It felt like that really could have not gone off the rails because it's not like they were getting blown out. But if they lifelessly lose that game, let's say, you know, they're down 2 nothing, they get shut out. I think the tone of this conversation might be a little bit different, right? Because it's like, oh man, they just can't, they can't score. What's going on? They come back, they score three goals, they win it late in dramatic fashion. And so it's more encouraging, certainly. Um, but I do still think that if you take a step back and look at it as a season from a whole, it's probably not what we all anticipated from them heading into the season, right? Yeah, and I wonder if us collectively as hockey observers maybe overestimated them as far as what they did last year offensively was pretty incredible. I think they finished third in goals or some definitely in the top five. And so you you know, for us to assume that that would be replicated was maybe a little naive. Not that they don't have the personnel to do it, but they were they didn't deal with a ton of injuries last year. Now they are. Most notably, Tage Thompson has been out. Um, Jack Quinn has been out the entire season. And it sounds kind of crazy because at this point in his career, Jack Quinn is, I don't know, a top nine winger, top six at best. Like he's not this, this complete stud, but you can really feel his absence in terms of uh, the winger depth. And... You know, Dylan Cousins is, has, you know, been dealing with something. Alex Tug started the season not looking like himself and, and presumably dealing with something. So there's there's that a part of the equation where, you know, we all get excited about some teams and we don't realize that, hey, like that one year that when they started to take off, everything seemed to go right for them. Uh, so I think there's that. And then I think uh, something that, again, maybe we, we didn't account for as a community was, they're older guys like Kyle Pozo, and I know he's coming off his first goal this season and, and played fairly well last last night against the, the Penguins, but he's really slowing down, and he's their captain. Sure, maybe they could healthy scratch him down the line, but like he's kind of uh, you know a, a permanent fixture on the on the fourth line. Gergensen's also on the fourth line, also an old veteran. You know, he's he's good defensively. He's not gonna hurt you, but he's not certainly contributing much offensively and is kind of on the back nine too. So there's that on the, with the forward group. And then I just feel like the, the there, there was some sort of disconnect here in, in between the fun team that we saw last year and, and, and the vibes, the vibes were immaculate and they were such a fun rush team. And then obviously Don Granado and Kevin Adams, they want to take that next step. They don't want to be stuck in this this spot where they're just just a vibes team, just a, a team that has low expectations. So in order to take that next step, you got to start playing better defense. Uh, and I think they tried to do that to start the season, and, and, and it kind of backfired as far as maybe the team overcompensating and not playing with instinct and that turning into what we saw and what we've been seeing uh, is is just not the Sabres that we've grown to to know and love. And interestingly enough, uh, last night, the first two periods, it kind of looked like the same old Sabres of, of this season. And then in the second intermission, Kyle Ocpozo, you know, it's kind of one of those like movie moments, right? He gets up and he's, 
he's he's given a speech to his teammates and he says we need to attack like we need to go 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 we need to play on instinct stop worrying about giving up chances again start playing downhill and it 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 materialized pretty obviously in the third period they scored three straight and you know tuck gets multiple breakaways um the goals they scored were very much uh you know aligned with what last year's team did so it could be a turning point. It could be nothing. But last night was was quite interesting as far as um, the players, whether it was Kyle Pozo or Alex Tuck after the game, really talking about how the third period is how they should play and that there's been something going on with the team to start the season as far as um, not necessarily being on the same page, not necessarily playing to their potential and playing to their appropriate style. Because as much as, you know, Granado and, and Adams and obviously the players want to take that next step and, and you know, become better defensively, become more well-rounded as a team, I feel like the way that they're built now as far as their personalities is certainly more suited for an offensively focused team. Um, so, yeah, there, and and I just looked at at the rush chances that they've generated this year. Um, going into last night's game, they were at 6.6 chances generated off the rush per game. Last year, they were at 7.1. I think that's kind of the key stat to describe the start of their season is just they're not, it's not like they're they're poor defensively. It's not like they've completely lost their way, but they've kind of lost that um, that bold approach, like Ocposo was saying during the intermission, the attack mentality. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is personnel driven and how much of it is like a flaw in the design in terms of the approach and what they're trying to accomplish building off of last year, right? Because you look and I think, okay, Nine, nine, and two, even after last night's win, minus six in goal differential for the season. You mentioned they were third or something in goals last year. They're twenty fourth in goal scoring rate as a team this season. And so, I think on the one hand, uh, our pal Thomas Jansen and I spoke about this when I had him on the show earlier this week. We were, we were kind of this theory of sometimes we just assume that not only from an individual level but from a team level, there's going to be this linear stepwise improvement from year to year where it's like, all right, you did this this one season and if you profile as a young, exciting team, you take this natural step the following year when sometimes it's not like that, right? You may take a step back or you might stagnate, but if you keep accumulating enough talent, once it all comes together and pops, you're going to surprise us and it's going to be like, all right, you went from not being a playoff team to all of a sudden being really, really good and not just like competitive, right? And so that's one thing. On the other hand, if you look at it, part of it is not having Jack Quinn. Tage Thompson's missed a bunch of time now as well, right? But for the most part, I think it's pretty encouraging what the young players are doing. I know the expectations are incredibly high for both Owen Powell and Ross Dali, and they already were. Then they signed the big extensions. But especially with like the young forwards, if you look at what like a Paterka is doing, for example, I think all of that is good. If anything, and I'm glad you brought this up, it's kind of an uncom- uncomfortable conversation for them to have. But the people bringing them down are the people that were kind of brought in or or kept on this team to provide stability or consistency, right? It's like you look at Eric Johnson's numbers and everyone he plays with, it just drags their performance down. Kyle Pozo's line, I know that line isn't brought out there to, to score off the rush and, and be this juggernaut offensively. But when that line's out there, they're generating like a goal per hour or something with them, right? Like nothing is happening. And they're coming out ahead in those minutes, actually, funny enough. But it just totally goes counter to what this team should be and what they should be playing like collectively, right? And so you put that together and then compare it with the backdrop of you've got Yuri Coolidge putting up these like historic numbers in the AHL where he's up to 11 goals in 16 games this year for his career, including last year in the playoffs. 42 goals in 90 AHL games as a teenager, like that's sort of presented as this charming stat, right? It's like, wow, look at what he's doing. And when I see that, I'm like, why has he played 16 games in the AHL this year? Like he should be on this <laughs> yeah. team. He, yeah, this, this, this is a skill set which they've been lacking this season. Like they need that. Uh, it sounds like they, I think they called up Isaac Rosen now after last night's game. Similar thing. Like these are players that, for whatever reason, we say, all right, you have like a bunch of young talent, you have high skill forwards, you need to balance it out. You can't just have a full team of them. But it's not like this team is performing the way they were last year, where it's like, all right, we're scoring so many goals, but can we defend? If anything, the offense has fundamentally changed. Like it's not just the goal scoring. You mentioned fewer chances off the rush. They're not getting to the high danger areas nearly as often. Their shot rate has come down. Like the 5 on 5 profile 
and we can get into the power play a little bit here too, has all changed. Like it doesn't resemble what it did last year. So this isn't a matter of, all right, we need to adjust to to the same things that were happening last year. It's actually a fundamentally totally different problem, right? And so I, I don't know if that's encouraging or not, because on the one hand, you'd think that there's enough firepower here for it to turn around, but the way they've played for large stretches this season just does not resemble what I want to see from this team. Yeah, it's 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 kind of takes you in two different directions uh, where on one hand, as you mentioned, you know, some of these players like Paterka's taken a nice step. Casey Middlestad is like really solidified. He's himself. been their best player this season. I think. Yeah, he's been incredible. Um, I think he's really built some strength and that's helped him with with puck protection because he's always been slippery. Um, Zach Benson, obviously a revelation. Um, Aiden Krebs, as we're talking, he's on the on the Mikey <laughs> Asimov All-Stars of just for existing, everyone else on the team wants to rip his head off. Yeah, Tuck had a pretty good quote after the game about how he's already gone after Crosby, already gone after Latang, and maybe Malkin's next on on Krebs' list in terms of the pens that he's going to agitate. Um, yeah, and and like say with, with Coolidge, the, I think the internal thinking is that they already have Victor Olofsson up, who is a similar type player. So it, it goes in line with what you're saying, Dimitri, where they're trying to really thread a needle here when maybe they're overthinking it. Maybe it should be, let's put the best players in our lineup and just let the horses run. Um, cause, cause I'm, I'm generally like really high in this team moving forward. You know, I, I think, you know, they can still make the playoffs this year. It's not like it's a, a lost season by any means. And I just think that their core is nice and young and strong. They're still a very young team. Um, but I wonder if the, the puzzle pieces are fitting if the, um, if, if, if the lineup is optimized at this point. And le- like I said, off the top, I mean, injuries as I haven't helped, especially when you, you compare it to last year when things went quite well on the injury front. So. But that should that that you'd think that would embolden them to to call some of these guys up yeah, and put them yeah. in featured roles. The opportunity has opened; it's there, right? It's yeah. not like it was maybe last year. I don't know. Hearing you 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 uh, reference having Victor Olafson, it's like uh, Sabres fans are asking Kevin Adams if they can have a Yuri Coolidge, and Kevin Adams is like, "No, we already have one at home, and it's Victor Olafson, and it's yeah. it's it's not the same thing." Um, it's not apples to apples, but maybe in his eye, it is. I don't know. No, I know I. I here's the thing the power play as well I kind of cited that I know they scored the goal actually funny enough Skinner scored it it's like a big point of contention for a lot of Sabres fans that I follow on Twitter and rightly so that he gets featured very heavily in like prominent roles where the puck is flowing through him and decisions are being made on the power play and he's obviously a very productive offensive player has had a a hell of a career and is really good and skilled but unfortunately those skills do not seem to translate to the power play and they never really have in his career. I know they scored quite a few goals with him on the ice last year in the power play, but you look, and I pull this up for his career, he's played 2,500 minutes now with the man advantage. And he's been, it's crazy to think that Jeff Skinner has been in the league for yeah long now. In that time, his teams have scored 6.5 goals per hour, which would rank as like, like very suboptimal, right? Like you want to get into that 8-9 range at least if you're going to be like considered really efficient and and so that's not nearly good enough and then you look now it's like all right they're scoring five goals per hour on the power play this year which is 25th uh they were much better at that last year and and so not having Tage thompson there as a trigger man and sometimes even when he was there early in the season uh it was like they were just kind of trying to call that one play all the time because it looks so cool when it works and and we know now like i talked with belfry on our kutrov episode that you have to be able to throw different looks at opposing penalty kills to keep them honest and keep some of those windows open. Um, but I think there's some adjustments there. Like I, I wouldn't panic about it. At the same time, it's obviously disappointing. And I think when you've gone, what, since 2011 or so now, since they made the playoffs, I understand why you don't really get the benefit of the doubt when you get sold this kind of bill of goods heading into the season. Like this is the year I finally take the step. Last year was fun. And this year is going to be awesome. And, and you don't get that out of the gate. It can be discouraging, uh, but I do think there's like the personnel is there to make these adjustments, and hopefully they they make some of them um, before this season goes off the rails again the way it has uh, for too many seasons in a row now. Yeah, they have the longest streak in history, playoff drought. Yeah, uh, that's not the good. NHL. It's it's not good. And on the Skinner point, yeah, I find that he's. Uh, you make a good point. I think he's way better five on five because he can dance in the offensive zone. He's kind of like. 
a guy that that doesn't really drive a line, but is certainly a really good complementary player, which is why he works so well with Tuck, who's kind of the the speed demon, and then Tage is the creator, the connector there. So, I the the power play sh- certainly shouldn't be going through Skinner. He should get his touches. He should be contributing, but um, it should go through Darlene or uh, Power or uh, I don't think I don't think Tuck, but um, and then obviously when Tage is around, but. Uh, they got the personnel. I, that's obviously the the bright side to all this is that their power play should be good. I mean, yeah, and that's obviously um, you know that sounds great, but at this point, you do want the results. It's weird because I, I like I said at the top, I don't really know how much of it. I, I think sometimes the execution's just been off. Like the players have not played up to their capability at times. Like especially early in the season, you watch and they like for large stretches cannot string together any passes, and it's like that shouldn't be the case. I don't know. I'm pretty sure the coach isn't telling him to do that. But at the same time, then you you look now almost like 20 games into the season and their their profile in terms of how they're playing and what they're trying to generate has changed from last year in a negative way. And so that is concerning to me. And 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 especially in light of our conversations last year where it's like, this is fun, they're scoring a lot, but to actually be considered a legitimate threat in a playoff team, you need to tighten it up and make life easier for your goalies. And then sometimes I think that can kind of get in your head and you can almost overcompensate. And that's why I fear that that's kind of what's happening here. Um, and I, it, it, it seems like it sounds like at least that, that you agree with that. That a hundred percent. And I think the team does, to be honest, based on the conversations in the dressing room after the game last night against the Penguins, I come back win. And uh, just to circle back on con- the way that this conversation started with me talking about expectations coming into the season versus what we've seen through 20 games. Devin Levi, we, you know, it's kind of crazy in hindsight that we all thought, okay, Devin Levi is just going to take this thing and run. And he could still do it to end the season. And I don't think he's played like terribly or anything, but he certainly hasn't uh, blown the doors off like he did when he came out of college last year. So I think us just going, you know, again, collectively as, as a hockey community going, oh yeah, Levi's got this. Like they're fine in net. I think that's, that was maybe a little naive on, uh, on our part. Um, especially when, you know, Comrie and Uka Pekalukunen were his contemporaries and, you know, Pekalukunen, uh, well, he's been awesome this year. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say he's, he's come on, but it's not like he's been given the net, right? Like it's still this, this shared role. Um, and they still have three goalies and, and there's not one that you really like could just throw out there and a hundred percent knows can take, take the ball and run with it, but maybe they'll get there. Like the, you know, I think that's one area where. Maybe you check back at the 40 game mark and go, what's going on with the goaltending? Or, okay, they got it right with this three man system of these largely unproven guys. Um, but again, looking into the season, it's like you just checked, you just checked off the goaltending because Levi is such a stud and we have such high hopes for him. But you never know, right? Things uh, don't necessarily always work out the way that you, you hope. And as you mentioned off the top, like things aren't always linear with teams, with players. And, Teams and players can figure it out over a long stretch, and I just think that the the Sabers are still working their way through it. No, I mean UPL has been awesome. He was like plus three point two goals saveable expected in nine games heading into last night's game. I, I another one in the column of never assume about goaltending, right? Because I I I spoke with Kevin Woodley a bunch last year. We both thought that he was the worst of the three. I know Conry's numbers were bad, but uh, by a lot of adjustments, when you looked at the context and apply that to it, he had actually performed more admirably. The new PL and I was kind of confused why they were carrying three goalies just at the at the, at the because of the fear of losing them right and and now he sort of rewarded them for that so so kudos to him for bouncing back but um, certainly not what I expected heading into the season okay yeah and just uh, being in the building last night and it was like a full house pretty rare for the Sabers these days awesome crowd they obviously have tremendous fans I love the the Lou the Lou mm-hmm. for Lukanen uh, just to replace Luongo like uh, there's a nice uh, porch. Or uh, passing of the torch there. And uh, the Sabres fan have, have picked up that chance. Okay. Um, let's do one more before we take a break here as we did uh, 20 minutes on the Buffalo Sabres there. But I think it was, it's there's a lot going on there and, and I haven't spoken about them nearly as much as I've wanted to this season just because of those results. So I'm glad we uh, we got some time on, on them. Okay, Ace asks, would love some more information on how the Bruins have sustained this much success this far into the year. Is it the simple fact they have two elite goalies and two number one defensemen? Does it speak to position value? And I think this is actually maybe an even more interesting part of this question. 
uh, Ace says, because I've always valued it as centers number one, then defensemen, then goalies, and then wingers last is the most replaceable. But the Bruins forward group seems to be built on strong wing play with two of their most, uh, two their, their two best for- forwards being obviously David Pasternak and Brad Marchand as wingers. Um, there's a lot of stuff there, certainly with the Bruins and also with this idea of roster construction and who's driving the bus and who moves the needle and all that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the Bruins here uh, before we go to break. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that jumps off the page for me is that they've continued to play, I'll call it winning hockey. You know, they they pack the slot with a ton of shots on offense and then they pack the slot with bodies on defense. So, you know, the, the, the math is pretty easy there. If you're getting high quality shots as an offensive team and limiting the shots defensively, that's going to, uh, that's going to turn into a lot of wins. And I feel like Don Sweeney, the GM, has hired some very good coaches. I mean, you had Bruce Cassidy, and then he hands it over to Jim Montgomery. I find that when I watch the Bruins, um, I see just, you know, we love to talk about structure and systems. Like, I just see uh, a lot of simplicity in how they play, and every player is is, is disciplined in, in how they are uh, positioned on the ice. And also, their special teams are really good. I mean, first penalty kill, 12th rank power play. Um, they are probably the best puck support team in the league. Uh, again, both on offense and defense. And how much of that is is the Patrice Bergeron effect uh, of previous years where he just rubs off on everyone around him because that was his bread and butter, just always being there for his teammates. Um and the last thing would be you can't discount the advantage of having two starters. I mean, every night they're throwing out a, let's be conservative here, a top 15 goalie in, in Swayman and, and Allmark. You could argue both of them are in the top 10. So if you're the opposition, you're never getting a, a night off. You're never getting a, a backup where you go, okay, this is point night or, okay, this is the night we can really take advantage of the Bruins. They just, they're just, they just keep throwing them out. They got this nice rotation and they, Obviously, you know, as it's it's been well told, well documented that Swayman and Allmark are best friends and they really cheer for each other. It's just the, this perfect uh, goalie duo. So that mixed with the fact that they had their first in goal differential in, in the first period, plus 11, you know, if if you always have the lead to start the game and you play a certain way, I think the, the losses of Bergeron and Krejci uh, become less significant. That's a really good point. What's interesting to me in looking at their profile and the way they play is there seems to be quite a gap between you look at the shot chart, for example, on on Hockey Biz with Micah's site, and you, it's what you'd expect, right? Like there's a lot of blue uh, defensively in their own zone in the middle of the ice. They essentially clear out between the circles and in front of the net, and you think, all right, that's Bruins hockey, right? For all those years under Patrice Bergeron. That's a no-fly zone. He's he's patrolling that, and they keep everything to the outside, and that's why their goalies are always so good because they make life easy for them with what they're facing, right? On the other hand, they're by private models, they're giving up a lot of inner slot shots. They're like bottom five or six in the league in terms of most given up, and their goalies, Allmark and Swayman, heading into last night's game, and I'm sure the numbers came down a little bit after they gave up a few against the Red Wings, but they'd given up 38 goals combined this season on 57 expected goals against worth of offense, which is obviously ridiculous, right? They yes. essentially have yes. like the first and second best goalie in the league. And so there's something, there's a gap there. And I think that makes sense that they're not as good defensively as they were when Patrice Bergeron was there. I think that that checks out to me. That intuitively makes sense. The structure and, and the fundamentals and the foundation that they've built all these years is still there, but it's just going to be a bit of a difference. And I think that the goaltending has covered that up because every single night they're never having to pinch their nose and use their backup and be like, all right, well, we might lose this game, but we got to rest our goalie because he can't play every night. In this case, they're always playing a top 10 goalie. And so that's a huge advantage for them along with the number one penalty kill, great special teams, and obviously star players up front at both positions. But I don't know. I don't think they're necessarily as good as they were defensively previously, but it just hasn't mattered yet. I do think the schedule has also been pretty favorable for them so far, right? They started off the year, as we noted, uh, early in the season with 
quite a cake schedule, playing a lot of inferior teams and having their games spread out and they were able to bank a bunch of points. I'm really curious to revisit this 15 games from now because if it continues, then obviously it's going to be a case of, oh, the Bruins are just, they're doing it again, right? They keep getting away with it. But um, I'm, I'm just curious to see if that's going to happen because there are some underlying signs that it's not necessarily uh, the same story as it's been previously. Yeah, that those are really good points. And another thing that strikes me about their lineup is that maybe not every single skater is is two-way capable, is is good defensively, good offensively, but it's pretty close. Like, So I think that certainly adds to uh, sort of like the sum of all parts uh, aspect of the Bruins where there's no, uh, there's obviously weak links, you know, to some extent, but I feel like you don't look on that roster and go like, this is a line that you can really target if you're the other team and you want your, your top guns out there and you can really feast on them. I just, I don't really see that. And at the same time, I, you know, coming into the season, I'm going Coyle and Zaka as their top two centers, like, are we really doing this? Um, but they've managed to to not only survive, but thrive. Coyle especially. And Pasternak and, and Marchand obviously have a big influence on that as as these play-driving star-level wingers. But they're they're just a really... I guess solid's the wrong word. It's, it's underselling it. But like, I look at their roster and I don't see any any glaring holes. And I think that goes a long way if you also have good coaching, good goaltending, and some star talent. Yeah, the continuity helps. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure there's necessarily from like a bigger picture perspective though. Like, you know, we always try to mine overarching lessons from this stuff, right? When something works, it's like, all right, how can, what can we squeeze out of this and then, and then apply that elsewhere? And sometimes there's one-offs. Sometimes there, there's things that aren't necessarily applicable. I'm not sure there is here. Um, but they're making it work, certainly, and it's a very unique profile they've got this season. So uh, we'll be curious to watch that moving forward. All right, John, let's uh, let's take our break here. And then when we come back, we'll uh, we'll go through a series of other questions from our listeners. You are listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast with John Mattis closing out the week with a listener mailbag. John, before we went to break, we were talking about the Bruins and their goaltending and I think we hit that well enough. I just, I, I was just wanted to put a bow on it. You had made the point, which is a really astute one, of just playing from ahead so often, right? Getting the jump on teams and then being able to sort of lean on them and not necessarily um, exposing yourself to unnecessary risks because you're playing from an advantageous position. That's so huge for a team like this. But also, uh, up until the other day, like one of my favorite stats was this season was that Jeremy Swayman had given up like one goal from outside the slot all year and then Allmark wasn't that far behind and I just think we probably also underrate how especially over the course of a regular season like most nights if you just don't beat yourself the other team will find a way to to do the opposite right like it's like just let them make the mistakes and you'll win more games than than not and that's essentially the Bruins to a T there, right? Where it's like, not only is the goaltending really good and in the aggregate has been phenomenal, the shape percentage, goals they expected, all that, but they also just like don't give up bad goals. And that's just such a enormous luxury that, that most teams just don't don't have the capability of. Um, okay, let's do a, a couple more questions here. So Kizu asks, do you think the narrative of East good, West bad for many hockey writers will change anytime soon considering Boston, who we just talked about, is still dominating the East despite having lost so many important pieces. The last two cup winners were also decidedly from the West and the current cup odds favor West teams as well. Often at the end of the year, people will look at point totals and compare the conferences with the East typically being much higher at the top. But that seems counterintuitive to me because wouldn't high quality competition result in lower point totals and more parity? It seems like the East has a few elite teams just farming points off of worse teams and stacking their point totals, giving perception of them being stronger. Teams like Washington and Philadelphia, for example, and we'll talk Washington more with a future question here in a second, sit in a playoff spot in the East while a team like Edmonton is mightily struggling in the West? Or is this all just a byproduct of hockey media being mostly, mostly based out East? So this is an interesting one because certainly last year, and I, I, we spoke about it on this show quite a bit, there was this trend where every time the East 
would play the West, the East teams were just like absolutely massacring them all year, right? And I, I, it might have leveled off a bit as the year went along, but I remember through like the halfway mark, it was some sort of comically lopsided amount every time the conferences played against each other. Now, that's, I think, more so random. I don't think that's necessarily something that is like this big picture trend. But just based on where we are right now, I think that's a good time for us to get a bit of a pulse check in terms of like the state of the league at the moment in terms of the hierarchy and where the power is currently residing, right? And or whether it is just balanced or whether we still don't know because we are 20 games in, but obviously some of the teams we expected to be good have not done so. And then maybe there's some teams that have uh, risen as a result that we weren't as high on heading in. I don't know where you are, but it, it seems like a Vegas Boston Cup final would make the most sense as far as the dominance and being in different conferences. And I don't think that's overly surprising. Obviously, Boston, to some extent, as we talked about in the other segment, because uh, everyone thought that they would take a step back, but ultimately they were the president's trophy team last year. Um, so I see, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see like, you know, the West having seven excellent teams and the East having two or something to that effect. But the, I mean, the Oilers, uh, starting off the season that, that the way that they have is really thrown off uh, the cup conversation in my opinion because I wasn't alone uh, in in thinking that they would make it to the cup final and potentially win and I was certainly one of those people um, and I think uh, in the east like you could make the argument that the Florida Panthers are one of the most surprising teams just coming into the season it was obvious it was it was uh, a no brainer to count them out given the injuries to Montour and to uh, who else was out? Montour, Ekblad, and, Ekblad, and then Bennett, right hand, pretty much all the first like fifteen games or so. So I think when you, you know, you kind of balance that out, where it's like, okay, one East team has overperformed, one West team has underperformed. Um, when I look at the standings, I, you know, I don't see one conference overly dominant. Um, I think you know Colorado's a bit of a sleeping giant. I know that they are currently tied in a three-way tie in the central. So um, maybe sleeping giant might be the wrong term because they are playing well. But I think, you know, if, if we're looking at teams on paper and their potential, their ceiling, they're certainly uh, in the cup conversation. So it's a bit of a, I mean, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, three quarters of the way through uh, what the, what the standings look like and, and if there's an imbalance, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's this big imbalance at this moment. Yeah. I think part of it is, right, the past couple of years, especially in the Atlantic, where it was like, all right, well, no matter what the Leafs do this regular season, they can have as many points as they want, but somehow they're going to wind up playing, like, they might be the second or third best team in the league, and they're going to play, like, the fourth or fifth best team in round one because of the way the league structures its playoff playoff format, right, with the two versus three seed in in the division. And so that just felt like, obviously, we'd have a lot of conversations about whether we're doing this the right way and whether we should be going to either the the one through eight format again or or potentially uh, a pipe dream of, of a one through 16 and trying to sort it by point percentage and trying to get some sort of balance there and, and I guess a meritocracy uh, more so than anything where you're actually rewarded for a strong regular season and then you're not your reward isn't playing a team who is your equal in round one right um, but I, I think this year the Atlantic has, has opened up quite a bit. I know Boston is 14-2-3. You mentioned them as the favorite. I I really like this Panthers team. I think especially as they get healthy, like they've been so good defensively this year as a team and they're playing the same way they played last year and, and that forward group is fantastic. And so uh, I think they're as, as live as anyone there. Whereas in the West, I've been talking up the Kings quite a bit and it looks like this, that, that conversation or conundrum might have shifted to the Pacific where we thought heading in to be the weakest division certainly Edmonton struggling and Calgary and Seattle not not being as good as we might have anticipated heading into the year is one thing but like LA is is such a good team in my opinion and has all the makings of just an absolute monster that matches up as well as anyone could possibly with this Vegas team and they're like mirror images of each other and that would just be an insane potential round two matchup and they might be the two best teams in the league at the moment just based on the personnel they have um so i I think the west is certainly better this year and maybe a lot of those uh concerns about just like how good the top of the atlantic is it's kind of evened out a little bit 
Um, but at the same time, the kind of the point that I've been making here on the show lately is also it feels like things have been kind of coming to the middle a bit of a little bit, regardless of this the the records that Boston and Vegas had to start the year. It feels like it's about as open as it's been, and the league certainly likes to champion that parody. Um, but it really feels like there's there's just so few teams other than I guess the Sharks really, right? Where it's like an automatic two points where you play them. Whereas last year in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes, right? Especially in the West with Anaheim just being an absolute disaster all year under Dallas Aikens and then the Blackhawks tanking and the Coyotes were 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 at the bottom as well and weren't trying to win. And you had all of these teams and it was it felt like every single night the odds were pretty good that if you were a West team, you're going to be playing someone who wasn't even trying to win. And so it's like, all right, we're going to be able to load up on these points, whereas the, whereas the East was much more balanced in that regard. Um, this year, at least for the time being early in the season, there's been a bit less of that sort of division in the hierarchy, I guess. Well, and someone I didn't mention, one team I didn't mention before was the Carolina Hurricanes, who on paper, coming into the season, I mean, arguably the deepest team. They had the track record of regular season success. Obviously, they've won rounds in the playoffs, haven't gone gone the distance, but just everything screamed Stanley Cup contender, and they they have twenty two points in nineteen games. So that certainly throws coming off, off coming off the heels of just being publicly eviscerated, <laughs> yes. by uh, by Nikita Kucherov. What timing? Uh, we just released Daryl Belfry and I released a, a a full fifty minute episode on Nikita Kucherov, just singing his praises and getting into all the nerdy details about every little subtle trick that he has in his bag and how he does this. And then he goes out on a Friday night and just absolutely like what they scored eight goals on the 10 shots they took with him on the ice. Uh, certainly not sustainable, but also you watch it and it's like, man, this guy is just an absolute just monster in terms of just picking you apart and just always making the offensive zone, the decision that leads to a high danger chance. And so that kind of showed also the, all the concerns that I have with Carolina for all these years and, and the fact that they just do not have that capability. Very few teams do, but like just to, to leverage the opportunities they do get into legitimately threatening ones. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to shout out because that's still on top of mind just watching what Kucherov did to them last night. He's such an assassin, like night to night. And then it was very much on display in that gong show of a game. Um, but yeah, to circle back on on the question from uh, for the mailbag, uh, the Eastern bias. I think I think it's I think it's probably fair. Like in general, if we're even taking this season's results and this season's projections out of it, because I, there's more media in the East. Every media member is human. They have certain biases. Um, you know, certain duties. Like say, if you're a beat reporter for the, the Maple Leafs, like. You're focusing on that team a lot of the time, and that means you're you're not watching a ton of Western Conference games. So you're not you're missing out on the subtleties of the Kings, for example, and how they, uh, if you watch them, you go not only can they put up points in the regular season, but they're going to really pop in in, the, in playoff hockey. Um, so I think that's part of it. And 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 you know, as a fan, I'm sure you go. People are probably screaming like they shouldn't be biased like this, but I I think it's just the amount, the quantity of media in the East. It's just naturally going to make it imbalanced uh, as far as, you know, opinions that people have on certain teams and how the lens they see the league. Um, You and I, obviously, we we cover the full league, so we we take a more holistic approach to things like you'll not necessarily have a Western bias as someone in in Vancouver. And I I tend to think as someone in Ontario, I don't really have an Eastern bias uh, because I do stay up late because I don't have to, you know, I'm not a Leaf speed writer who has to be... Um, kind of uh, dialed in and for different hours, but but I think it just become it comes down to quantity. There's Toronto has uh, a ton of the media contingent. New York does too, and it, and it starts to really thin out towards the West. So I don't think it's malicious or on purpose. I think it's just it's just humans being humans with their biases. Yeah, it's more concentrated. But luckily, we have a show like the PDO Cast that's going to spend as much time as possible talking about the Kings and uh, seeing there you the phrases. And that's a good segue here. Next question. Curtis asks, should the NHL adopt a most improved award like the NBA? And if so, who are this season's way too early candidates for such an award? Now, I do think they should. And I do think we should also clarify the ground rules between 
the methodology for what the award actually is because I think it's easy to get it mistaken for comeback player of the year, which in my opinion, the NHL also doesn't have. They have the Masterton, but it's like a trauma award. And yeah, it's basically. Not, it's not actually <laughs> like... Every team gets a, a, nom- a, nominee, a nominee as well. So it's yeah. like, here's 32 guys to feel bad about. Yeah, I, 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 like I get it. It's like nice to have recognition yes. for someone yeah. who's overcome personal difficulties, whatever the capacity was, yeah. to come back and perform at a high level. That's great and that's honorable. But I don't like, it's like, all right, these are the 32 guys who have suffered the most. Now let's, <laughs> let's, now let's judge accordingly who suffered the most out of those 32. Whereas like, it would be cool to see like a guy like Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, I know it's early in the season, but that would be a comeback, right? Where mm-hmm. part of it was injury based, but also part of it was written off, uh, clear decline for years, not the player he used to be at his height and then goes to a two new team and then all of a sudden gets rejuvenated and, and shows that he has more on the tank than maybe we thought he had any right to to have at this point, right? That's a comeback player of the year, in my opinion. But that's not necessarily, even though he improved from last year, in my opinion, that's not most improved. Because I, I think for me, it needs to be, and this is going to skew towards younger players, certainly, yeah. but like a player who's on an upward trajectory and is better than we previously viewed them. It can't be a player who might be better than they were last year or the past couple of years, but still isn't at their best. Like if it's not, it can't be like a post prime thing in my opinion, I guess. Yeah, it would definitely in this, I, first of all, I don't hate this idea. I think it's actually quite a good idea and would create a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. Uh, I actually remember getting a, a most improved award as a minor hockey player. It felt like a bit of a backhanded compliment, but you know, you take it. Um, and it, I think that if this was instituted, sophomores would just, climb to the top of the list right so you see a bit of them as a rookie you see some flashes and then they really hit the ground running as a sophomore um and you know in terms of people that i would nominate this early in the season travis sanheim comes to mind quinton byfield mason mctavish all you know sanheim's older but mctavish and byfield quite young and they've come into their own so to speak uh you know byfield with the comfort level on that line with Kempe and Kopitar, you've discussed him on the show. I don't have to go in depth on him. McTavish, you know, he's top 10 in inner slot shots per game. This guy just lives in the front of the net. And he's just such a hockey player, right? You look at him, you're like, this guy's going to play in the league for 20 years. He's probably going to be the Ducks captain. And he's just going to quote unquote play the game the right way. And, and we're certainly seeing that. And, and he brings a different dynamic to that Ducks team that's very skilled. I like the, the step that he's taken and just um, where he's headed. And, and Sanheim, I mean, very good underlying numbers, and he leads uh, Flyers skaters with with 26 minutes a night, and that's four minutes more than the second person. And that's notable because his coach is John Tortorella, who does not, uh, you know, give out minutes just to, to anyone. Like, you got to earn it. And I think that he's a pretty good example of someone who is, um, I think he's in his late 20s now, 27 or something like that. Um and he's, he's, I don't know if like it's, you know, most improved for Sanheim. I'd have to do more of a deep dive, uh, but he's jumped off the page as far as someone who's, um, you know, leveled up this season. I mean, was healthy scratch last year and really they tried to trade him quite a bit before his no move clause kicked in this past summer. Right. So, and it would have, if, if Tory Krug had waived his own. Oh, right. The Tory Krug. Um, so yeah, in terms of circumstances, certainly most improved. Um, the answer is Byfield. I mean, just the step he's taken this year, leveraging, as we talked about, all of his physical tools into like functional dominance and just seeing him apply it every game, seemingly more and more often shift to shift basis, uh, has 15 points in his past 13 games. Like he's just such a beast and such a part of that top line. And then, yeah, we've spoken about him quite a bit, but I do think he's the clear answer here, in my opinion, uh, in terms of player that's just taken the biggest natural step from from last year to this year. Luke Shen might, like, not at this very moment, but last year or a year before that, might be a sneaky good pick for a veteran. His type of story where right. he's a stay-at-home defenseman, and then he gets to work, he's in the lab in the offseason. I can't remember who it was Thomas Drance or Armand Dial who did yeah, it. Yeah, he was working right. with Adam Oates, yeah. Yeah, and, like, you know, there's sort of that narrative of, of him... 
reinventing himself to some extent, but also still true to, you know, his qualities. There's that mixed with, you know, how how well he played for the Leafs. I think that that would be an example of of a veteran that that you could throw into this conversation where there's some sort of stylistic change, some sort of step late in his career uh, where you go, okay, like this, this isn't the same player we used to see. And and you can tell it's from, from hard work and, and really trying to improve himself. So I think that might be a, a good, you know, retroactive example. Well, somewhat in that vein, it's kind of cheating because he was already really good. And I just, this is a bit of a spoiler because my next show is going to be <laughs> fully about this guy, but Quinn Hughes is yes a good one for this and i don't want to spoil too much of that show but you can like trace back the work and fundamental improvements he made in specific parts of his game that have played a big role in the step he's taken this year right it's not just like young guy just naturally got better or got put in a better situation you it's it's much more um by design i guess or deliberate as opposed to just like organic so um he would be that but yeah, I like I like commemorating like players who went from not impactful to like legitimately very valuable as opposed to going from like really good to even better. Um, because that's like it's it's a very important and it's obviously made a huge difference in Hughes, Hughes' case for the Canucks, but I think it's just kinda cooler to see like the step a guy like Byfield's taken, right? And and kind of what that's meant. Okay. One more question here from from Space Squirrel. I'm thrilled the Capitals are in a playoff spot right now. But are they legit, or are they just getting crazy goalie performances now? Even after uh, yesterday's spanking at the hands of the Edmonton Oilers, I think it was five nothing at the end. They have a ten five and two record. They're third in the East in point percentage as we're speaking here. I wrote them off at the start of the year, especially I think they started like one three and one or something. Uh, we're averaging about a goalie game through that stretch with their shooting percentages completely in the toilet. Now they're still thirty first in the league in scoring, only scoring more often than the San Jose Sharks, so it hasn't really meaningfully improved, but they've been getting really good goaltending and they've been winning a lot of games, so where are we at with the Capitals? Was I too quick to write them off, or is this just sort of delaying the inevitable, I guess? I think it's mostly delaying the inevitable. Like The thing with the Capitals that I find difficult to get behind is they're so old, and I uh, like you know you, you lose Backstrom, and Pacioretty still hasn't come back. When I look at the roster, I just see a fringe playoff team at best, like best case scenario. And according to Hockey Reference, they do this strength of schedule metric, and they've had the easiest schedule so far, the Capitals. So you know, take that for what it's worth. I'm not quite sure what goes into that metric, but if you're last, that means that your schedule has probably been pretty pretty easy. Um, and Eighth in team save percentage. And when I look at Darcy Kemper and Lindgren, I don't necessarily see a tandem that that should be eighth in save percentage. That, that doesn't mean they can't you know sustain it over a season as possible, but um that's another red flag or or warning sign that that perhaps what we've seen over the last few weeks is not quite what they will be by the end of the season. And I also don't see any major breakout performances from from young skaters, you know. Uh, it, uh, uh, Connor McMichael's looked all right. Um, I think that he's he's, you know, he could be a breakout player, but you know, is it a major breakout for him? I don't think so. Uh, in terms of being that that real uh, play driver, so it's one of those things where you go, good for you guys that you've you've gotten these wins, and I don't think that they're, you know, it, it's like not they're obviously well earned. It's not like they're they're lucking into this this little run here completely, but if you're trying to project forward. And trying to be realistic about things, I would say it's mostly going to come back to the start of the season, and they'll they'll finish you know outside the playoff spot, playoff uh, cut line by five, six, seven points, something like that. Yeah, they're five zero and two in one goal games, which we know um, can be coin flips, and probably not something you should be fully relying on to the degree they have. They're my, despite the fact they're ten five and two, as I said minus seven goal differential for the season, which is like they're largely just getting by by the skin of their teeth. Um, yeah, I don't... I Like, Charlie Lindgren has a plus eight goal save above expected. I like the defensive personnel they have, but you look and only the Sharks are giving up more inner slot shots against than they are. It really has been just really strong goaltending, particularly from Lindgren this season. 
And offensively, they're 26th in terms of generating inner slot shots of their own. So I don't think there's reason to believe that there's going to be meaningful offensive uptick as well. So yeah, I on the one hand, like you said, if you told me, if we're having this conversation at the start of the new year in January and they had 10 wins, I'd be like, yeah, I believe it. If you had told me that a couple of weeks ago and and now they already have 10 in their first 17 games. So um, yeah. clearly have exceeded expectations. But yeah, I would uh, I would not be expecting anything resembling this that continued unless they like meaningfully improve the way they've been playing because this is not a formula for success moving forward okay john we got to get out of here uh this was a blast it was good to have you on again and get into the listener questions to close the week out i'll let you plug some stuff here on the way out and uh and let the listeners know where they can check you out sure so your best bet is just follow me on twitter because i post all my links there um or download the score app with and you know if you're listening you probably already have it but if you don't you're missing out. Uh, and so on Twitter, I'm at Mattis John. That's M A T I S Z J O H N. And nothing, you know, else to plug on my end. But I would like to say, I mean, I'm in the Discord for the PDO cast, and yeah. it is popping in there. Some great questions, great conversation, some memes. It's it's the best of uh, every world, and certainly a lot better than Twitter. So uh, I'd recommend that. That's my plug. I'm going to plug the Discord. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I I genuinely mean it. It's become a thing where out of habit. Like if I'm watching a game and something happens, or even when I like wake up in the morning and I'm I'm like catching up on my phone, it's become one of the first, if not the first things I check, right? It used to like automatically be Twitter and then like maybe Instagram, my email and stuff. Like now I'm like, I just want to get in there and see what people are saying because the conversation's been that good and and it's just always like if something's happening, people are talking about it. It's a blast. And so um I've been really enjoying it. I'm proud of, of the community we're building up there. And if you want to get involved, if you're not in there yet. Um, the invite link is in the show notes as we keep talking about. So just get in there. If you can't find it, feel free to message me. I'll pass it along. You can get in there and, and not only easily access, uh, people like myself and John and a lot of other people that appear on the show, but also just chat with like fellow listeners and other people who are as, as, as deranged as we are about this sport <laughs> and, uh, and is always willing to chat about it. So, uh, yeah, that's a co-sign from me. This is a blast, man. Highly recommend everyone checking out your work. I, I love reading uh, the way you cover the game, and I love having you on here, so we'll do that again soon. And that's going to be it for another week of shows. Like I said, we've got Daryl Belby coming on to start next week with a Quinn Hughes deep dive, so check that out uh, on the YouTube page as well under the Hockey PDOcast banner. And thank you to everyone for listening to us. We'll be back with more of the Hockey PDOcast on the Sportsnet Radio Network.